the history of personal computing. History, history, history. History of Personal Computing. Welcome back, everyone, to the second episode of the History of Personal Computing podcast. And I'm David Grealish, and I'm going to be hosting today's show. My co-host is Jeff Salzman. Hiya, Jeff. How are you doing today? I am doing fine, David. How are you? I am excellent. And so moving right along, the History of Personal Computing podcast is your bi-weekly virtual guide in both audio and on the web to the history and development of arguably the single most important technological advancement of the last 40 years, the personal computer. But just what is a personal computer these days? Well, that's just it. It continues to evolve. So we're going to be going over the significant devices one by one. Our idea was to create a new podcast about computer history that was unique. So we decided to make a combination audio podcast, website, slash guide, and highlight related eBay auctions each episode to gauge current collectability and value. Each show will be about 50 minutes to an hour long and will cover two systems, generally discussed in a date order. Our approach is to look at the systems from a standpoint of that of a museum curator. Like a placard for a physical museum display, we want to share and discuss just enough information to whet the appetite of the viewer or listening visitor in this case. So the podcast will be a supplement to the blog, and the blog will add value to the podcast. So Jeff, let's um, open today's show with a little discussion of what we've been up to since the last show. Um, what is new with you? Oh, me. I, I went through some stuff I had stored away and found some inter interesting old devices and, and magazines, old uh, Amiga World magazines, old uh, popular electronics magazines. Oh, really? We live in the past. What I still have to go through most of it, but um, it, I found an old computing device magazine, well, at least a later computing device as far as the timeline of this podcast is. What is I it? Found, well, I found an Omni magazine. Wow. That had, now this is a 24-year-old issue. It was from 1990, and it has a holographic, you know, 3D-looking insert in the front cover that shows um, a, an old Motorola flip phone. Which is a computing device. Um, yeah. With, you know, the ones with like the little uh, LED displays. Mm -hmm. And it was saying uh, something like, what's it going to be like 20 years from now? Uh, and, what, and it had predictions too? It had some predictions on the inside. I found out later it was actually a collector's issue. Um, so I'm actually going to sit down and read it sometime. But I was subscribed to that magazine 24 years ago. And it's, it's amazing. I still had it and I was reading it. And I thought, well, you know, we can apply this to how all this goes with the history of personal computing. 20 yeah. years seems like a lot of time, but it can go by so quick. So many changes can happen. Is uh, Omni's not around anymore, is it? No, I think they have something different. Um, oh, what is it called? It's like Omni Reboot or something like that. It, they're, they're just kind of going back through old issues and pulling out some key insights. Oh, on the web? Magazines. Hmm. But other than that, uh, well, what have you been doing? Well, we are both on a podcast this morning. That's so, so that's that was true. cool. That's true. Right out of the right out of the 
what do you call it? <laughs> you, you you pitted me up against uh, three Mac users. Yeah. <laughs> me, the traditionalist. Do you know I wanted to kick myself because, of course, James, the one of the hosts of the Retro Mac cast, that's the show we were on, is, uh, you know, he wanted us to still tell a little bit about ourselves. And, uh, and I... And, and like later on, I'm going, why didn't I first say, hey, I'm a big Mac fan just like you guys? <laughs> I didn't say anything about that. Your reputation precedes so, you. Everybody knows uh, you're into Mac. But that was great. So, so we got interviewed. I didn't and, my tongue or anything, you know, or trip over my own words. Uh, kind of got off on some tangents there on that interview. But other than that, it was fun. Those are some really nice guys to uh, talk with. They're, they're bigger Apple fanboys than me. Wow. Okay. <laughs> that's not an insult <laughs> no no hey they, they, they got a good thing going and more power to them yeah. let's see what else oh I know what else I wanted to mention so what else I've been up to is I have really truly been working on the Stan Veet history of the personal computer podcast which I haven't updated in three years or whatever so I've done four chapters which is a shame and so now I'm working on the fifth chapter which hey coincidentally is about Apple computer and about Stan Veet and his wife meeting uh, the two Steves and them sharing their booth at the, uh, I'm trying to grab the book here. I don't remember what the name of the, anyway, it'll be in the podcast, but they, uh, an early computer show in, I think in New Jersey. So it's a, it's a good story. It's a good chapter. So that's I to your first episodes. Now I'm on the edge of my seat. I've been on the edge of my seat for years until you come out with the next chapter. And I predict this will probably want to be one of the most popular and biggest episodes because, you know, it's about Apple. So you know, why it's taking me so long to finally do it. I, you know, I'm sorry. But anyway, that's what I've been up to. So that's that's the big news. So, you know, podcasts, starting this podcast with you has finally helped me sort of, uh, you know, get back doing this other podcast, which I just refuse to let die. You know, I, um, I convinced Stan Veet while he was still alive to allow me to do it. And, you know, unfortunately, he died a few years ago. So um, it's worth doing, but I also feel sort of obligated to do it. If anything, in his memory, yeah. So, all right, enough chit-chat. So moving right along, back to the show notes here. There's some real work to do here, huh? What's next? Oh, next is we're going to move right along to... So basically what we're doing each show is we're going to cover two machines. So the first machine we're going to talk about is, uh, logically, the MITS Altair, which is generally considered the first, you know, real personal computer. And Jeff's going to talk more about it. That's going to be his segment. And then we're going to follow it up with... uh, It would have been the MSI... But now it's going to be the K-Pro. And this has to do because uh, Andrew K, the founder of K-Pro Computers and the creator of the computer, you know, the company, he died, just died this pet like a week ago or two weeks ago, I guess. So anyway, so let's start off with the Altair and you take it away, Jeff. Okay, wonderful. Um, the Altair 8800 uh, from MITS, which stood for Micro Instrument Telemetry Systems, was the world's first personal computer. That is the world's first commercially successful mass-produced personal computer. It established creator Ed Roberts as the father of the microcomputer. And it also established Albuquerque, New Mexico as its birthplace, way out there in the desert. There were a few other earlier machines available in very limited numbers, but none of them came as complete as a complete kit or fully assembled and tested as the Altair was. So this is basically a full production computer. Ed was one of the co-founders of MITS, along with key employee Forrest M. Mims III, and I like Forrest. I, I used to buy um, electronics books that had his name, and he wrote up from, from Radio Shack. Yeah, I remember uh, those. Th- those are great. Those little engineer notebooks. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I have a couple of them still floating around somewhere. They're very handy-dandy. He knows this stuff. 
That's probably why they came out with a successful computer. The company was originally formed to sell electronic kits for model rockets. Later, Ed bought out two other partners when he decided to go into the calculator kit market, but they decided not to get into calculators themselves. By 1973, MIT sold over $1 million in calculators a year, but by mid-74, competition from Japanese with cheap calculators had the company in over $300,000 of debt. Isn't that crazy? A lot of money back at that time, yeah. Well, I mean, the fact that they sold a million dollars and then all of a sudden a year later, they're like in debt. He's in debt, probably trying to price match with the yeah the, the Japanese market. And, and I think even Texas Instruments was coming in at this time. That was right around the time when the Japanese were you know killing Americans in electronics and automobiles are just starting to that's right like the honda i think first yep. toyota yep yep all and, those. and datsun datsun yes i remember those uh tiny tiny cars anyhow um mitts needed another key product in order to survive there was a project rivalry between radio electronics magazine and the popular electronics magazine and Radio Electronics had published an article on a computer kit called the intel 8008 processor based Mark 8. I think we discussed the Mark 8 in the previous podcast. A little bit, yeah, briefly. Ed decided that his company would create a computer based on the more powerful Intel 8080 and have it ready for the January 1975 issue of Popular Electronics. Although being met with a number of hardships during its development, the Altair 8800 made the deadline for kit publication in uh, Popular Electronics. One famous related story is how the first prototype was forever lost in October 1974 due to the employee strike and bankruptcy of Railway Express Agency. <laughs> yeah. But as planned, though, they, they were troopers here. As planned, though, the Altair appeared at newsstands a week before Christmas 1974 on the cover of the January 1975 issue of Popular Electronics. And surprise, surprise, within a few days, phone calls and orders began pouring in. By February, MITS had received 1,000 Altair orders, and then by August of 1975, there had been over 5,000. Crazy. Uh, somebody <laughs> hit the right market at the right time. Huh. I mean, all this for somebody who just last-stitch effort needed to do something and, and pick the right market. Yeah, and all those orders from basically uh, pro, you know, proto-nerd, you know, geek hobbyists of 1975. The homebrew uh, computer club, right? Yeah, this all those people that dreamed of having a computer like Steve Wozniak versus a house. Or, yeah, <laughs> or, or those who just couldn't build one, who loved the idea of homebrew computers but couldn't build one or or whatever. You know, they could sit and watch other people build them or they can buy this and have something they can jumpstart themselves with. Yeah. So that was obviously a good market then at that point there. Get those people who weren't going to spend a whole lot of money. In fact, it... it these things sold for about four hundred dollars, which um, I think the calculation was done recently. That's about what seventeen hundred in today's dollars. Like oh, that. that's right. Yeah, we looked it up on a inflation calculator. So, yeah, that's about right. Nineteen seventy-five dollars. So buying a Mac uh, MacBook. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, by, by comparison. <laughs> yeah, a fifteen-inch Retina. You're right. Exactly. <laughs> but. Um, that price, though, that was the kit price, wasn't it? Yeah. I had to build it, and, of course, it didn't always work the first time, but you know, that, that I, that I'm sure they provided plenty of help. It, it didn't get popular for a reason. So what, what did you get in your kit? You got something with which was basically, you know, at the core was a tiny 8080 microprocessor. And this is, you know, where microprocessors really started 
kicking off and, and as you'd mentioned, kickstarted the home computing revolution. A lot of the basic functionality of computers built into one chip and everything else is supporting uh, components. And that revolutionized computing. Now, you didn't have a whole lot of RAM on these things, uh, but you get it in various configurations. Oh, yeah, that's an interesting story, isn't it? Um, I'm trying to think. What was it? If you the, As you received it in the basic kit, what was it? It was less than 1K. It was like, yes. oh, it was 256 bits, right? I believe. Oh, something like that. I think so. Uh, and th there's probably some argument on that, too, except for those who actually bought the kit or own the kit still. Um, I mean, it's not like you couldn't expand it. Just you weren't going to get a whole lot for your $400, but you did get a computing device that you can program and um, get output from. So you can make it do things. Uh, as glorified as it is, um, the Altair 8800 is basically an extension of the microprocessor as opposed to what we know of computing devices. But under the same class, it is a computing device. It has input, it has output, and you make it do things. I'm going to the source of all knowledge. Okay. You do that, and I'll continue on. Wikipedia. Just, just let me know what you find. Meanwhile, um, as mentioned before, uh, the Altair 8800 exploded on the scene after Popular Electronics debuted it. Um, and we have links to uh, uh, magazine scans of the January 1975 Popular Electronics article, uh, the front cover of the magazine, um, it can be found on the Southwest Technical Products Corporation website, and we'll include that link in the show notes. There were numerous models of the, of the Altair, and details about that, along with David's interview with Ed Roberts, can be found at the virtualaltair.com website, and we'll have a link to that. And yet, David was lucky enough to, or was he lucky? Or was Ed <laughs> Roberts lucky enough to be interviewed by David? We'll let you decide, but it's a good interview. Go there and listen to it. Yeah, and that I mean, how long has it been up there? I guess is he died um, a few years ago, and that's when I I found the the micro cassettes that I had recorded, and then I in their entirety I transcribed them. Um, I'm sorry, what am I saying? I didn't transcribe them. I just rec I just converted them to digital, then put them up on on my site as well as Virtual Altair. I offered it to him. He had always been running my transcribed interview from historically brewed which wasn't the entire interview for like years and years he'd had it up there he had contacted me and asked if he could put it up there so so that's kind of neat but it's really neat to listen to to ed roberts talk it was from about 1996 i believe top of my head and you recorded on micro cassette so if people listen real close they, they can hear the capstan turning right well but... funny is i actually used a vintage computer at the time to record our interview so I used uh, um, Convergent Technologies Work Slate. That's what it was called. And from like 1983, I think. Okay. So, so. we'll talk about that in episode <laughs> 92, right? <laughs> yeah. It may or may not be featured in one of our episodes. So, Anyhow, did you find the Wikipedia stuff before I move on? Oh, yeah. So okay. I was right. So it used a, uh, where is it? It came with a 1024 word memory board populated with 256 bytes. So not bits. I was going a little RAM, bit too crazy, really, but okay. And you can still do things like I mean, even programmable calculators at the time had less memory. Yeah, and so if you wanted to add a um, a full, looks like one one not one megabyte, one fourth of one k. <laughs> so if you want to add a full one k memory board or forty thousand four thousand ninety six uh, word memory board, it was two hundred sixty four dollars kit, three hundred thirty eight dollars assembled. 
And, it, and that's a whole other story because they had lots of problems with their RAM boards. And that's why a lot of people decided to go with, uh, you know, competitors. Well, and they were still trying to test out the S100 bus, make sure everything was working okay. So I'm sure as you added cards to that bus system that it worked off of, there was probably some clashes. Well, I know that MITS originally went with, I hope I get this right, they, their original RAM boards, which had lots of problems with, were static RAM boards. And then competitors came out with dynamic RAM boards, which were which were superior. And yeah, static doesn't. RAM is, is nice. It's actually, I think, cheaper. But... Uh, no, it's more expensive, but there's something about it. I know Commodore used static RAM in some of their computers, and they, they did it for a reason. I'll have to look up some notes for that. But, yeah, dynamic RAM seems to be the way to go. It's It just it runs better. Right, and that's what all future computers used. It just has that refresh that has to go on all the time. But, uh, yeah, I'll talk about the how it was to actually use it in a little bit. Um, but one thing I wanted to add before I do that is, you know, as when this came out and people wanted it, they had to get on a very long waiting list. I mean, people literally pulled an Apple launch type of action, you know, as we know Apple launches today, where, where they parked and camped in front of MITS to wait to wait the manufacture of their new computer. I mean, can you imagine? You know, people thought Apple had something going when everybody, you know, waits in line for the first five or six weeks or whatever it takes to, <laughs> to get first in line. But they were doing this back then in 1975. Probably in Chevy Chevy vans with you know shag carpeting inside. <laughs> okay, so somebody finally got their their Altair. What do they do with it? Well, you program the computer, just like you did with almost any other computer before. It was so much easier to get software off the shelf. But programming the Altair in its native capacity was horrendously tedious. First of all, you had to hand compile your programs. You had to have a series of numbers that you had to flip switches for. You would you would set a starting memory address, and then you set switches to represent eight bits of data to put in one number. That number could be either be an, um, a microprocessor instruction or a piece of data. And then you press a button to write that value into memory. Then it goes to the next memory location. Uh, repeat ad nauseum, and eventually you'll have an entered program. And then you can run the program and watch the blinking lights on the front go back and forth and change. And then you have to decode the lights on the front to understand the output. That's what you got in your box when you when you picked it up from Mitz's first releases. You said you're not a programmer. Uh, you told me once before you're not a programmer, David. No. Uh, so this this is this is something you wouldn't want to do yourself, right? No. I mean, I did take early on. I took some programming classes. So. Um... And actually, you know, that was part of a lot of early computer classes was some basic programming. And I actually took a Fortran and a COBOL programming class, which was kind of interesting and fun. But no, I, I'm not a programmer, so I certainly wasn't very good at it. And, so flipping uh, switches all day <laughs> just to get a program in that would yeah. go away when you turned off the machine. Right, right. So you'd have to do this all over again. But that's the way the homebrew stuff was. But the nice thing about it is somebody else wrote a program. All they have to do is give you the list to type, or to not type in, it's not even that. Uh, they give you the list of numbers to put in, and you can run the same program. It just takes a lot of time. It is, it is very tedious. But before long, because of the nature of the system and the fact that the system was expandable with cards that provide additional functionality, you had input devices like paper, tape, and magnetic tape, and that can be used to load data into the computer and even whole operating systems and other programs. 
And then for output, instead of just the red lights on the front, you could have terminals, which would print on paper, like a teletype machine, or you'd have CRTs, like a video interface and display as the output. And then these turned the Altair into a more formidable computer, much like what we're used to today. Just to mention too is, you know, we refer to it as the S100 bus was sort of the first de facto standard in uh, you know, pre-IBM PC computers, the 8-bit you know, CPM computers. But, you know, originally it was called the Altair bus, you know, because it was for the Altair and Ed Roberts invented that and him and his staff. And he was actually quite peeved that um, as it became a generic standard and the clone market, you know, came out and copied, copied it. And then they... I think I guess it was part of the IEEE or whatever. But they, you know, they then deemed it the S100 bus. It became peer reviewed. Yeah, but you know, originally, it, yeah. yeah, it was the Altair bus. It was a proprietary thing. But I, and I don't know all the legalities about it. I assume it wasn't copyrighted or trademarked or whatever. Patented. Well, it could be one of the reasons. But still, it 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 became a pioneer in that sense. Yeah, it was a de facto standard for. I mean, as far as uh, other than, you know, some of the other, you, I guess you could call them the consumer computers of the 70s, it was the de facto standard. Yep. And, well, and the S100 bus, I think what the the name came from, uh, I, I don't know if S stood for socket or what, but the 100 means it has 100 pins on it, on, on the slot, I guess 50 on each side of the card that would go into it. So there was a reason for its name, but yeah, it, it launched standards, um, which helped other companies, third-party companies, create cards that work in these S100-based systems. Now, once you start expanding your Altair with the, uh, you know, the tape input or um, or way to load up programs and the way to see something other than lights, you know, those were actually conveniences for the computer. You were still, in some cases, depending on what you bought, you still had to hand load what was called a bootstrap program you actually had to flip the switches to enter a handful of bytes of programming. And I, I have a link in the show notes, or we will have a link in the show notes, of somebody actually doing that. It's a YouTube video. It's really neat to watch uh, if you're into this kind of stuff. But he, he actually goes through and hand loads the original bootstrap program that allows the Altair to know how to read a uh, a paper tape machine and then from that point there he can load in his up he, I think he loads in basic and shows that he has a uh, a standard computer running basic that he can type basic programs on so you could either sit there and watch blinking LEDs or you spend a little extra money as with anything else you know even today we buy stuff we accessorize it well that's what they did back then they accessorized their Altair but they had it, it was very functional home computer um, once it got past that initial, you know, fresh smell out of the box. <laughs> so in a nutshell, that's what the Altair was. Um, it it was a basic computer, I mean, the most basic computer, but it was, you know, yeah. almost infinitely expandable, and you could still do a lot with it, and it sets the stage for home computing. It was definitely point. not for a mass market appeal. It was not for the average person at all. They didn't even try to market it that way. You'll yeah. always have your early adopters, and that's what does it for everybody else. you got to have the early adopters in there that are pulling their hair out over something that may or may, may not work to make it uh, 
you know, pleasant and usable for the mass market. It's, you know, it's not exactly the same, but it makes me think of, um, I mean, obviously like the Arduino or the Raspberry Pi where, you know, they're not trying to market that to Mr. and Mrs. America in general. It has a specific market that, that you know, for people that are interested in that sort of thing. And that's really the same sort of people, you know, the, the modern maker movement and stuff is are similar to the, these people 40 years ago or whatever. That's an excellent analogy. Yeah, because then you can expand the Arduino and the Raspberry Pi to do things with additional hardware. So it, it is it is the past being, you know, relived again. Just a different generation of, of do-it-yourselfers. Of nerds. But, you know, <laughs> yeah. And, and people people can see a lot of what's going on. They can go to YouTube and see, you know, what Arduinos are doing and, and get an idea for that. But, you know, think back in the past. It, it's, it's 1975, okay? Uh Personal and home computers were really not the thing. And yeah, you may have come across this popular electronics magazine um, on the on the newsstand, and you may have seen issues a few issues later on as they most likely talked about its growth, the growth of the Altair. But imagine yourself as a new computer user, where the Altair was the only affordable computer on the market. So you almost have to think to yourself, you know, how would you have felt about it if you have you know this compute home computing idea uh basically tickles your fancy you know but you may not have the money or you do have the money you go out for how do you think you felt about it knowing that this is now available i know that um if i was an adult back then i would have been interested in computers so trying to sort of think of you know who i am and who i even was as a little boy of course 1975 but who i would have been as a grown-up but I think I would have been really interested and really fascinated by it, and I would want to learn more. I think ultimately, though, if I had looked into it, it wouldn't have been a money thing. Even you know, well, it was kind of pricey. You know, it wasn't something you just go buy on a whim. But I think I would have been like, "This is I'm over not my with their head. waiting list." That's for sure. Yeah, but also I think it would have been over my head, definitely, for for me anyway, because you know I I was more of a. I guess that's why sort of like the the Macintosh sort of you know. That was the fire that got me really excited because it was the kind of computer targeted to a person like me, somebody who uh, didn't have to fool with the hardware so much, but just, you know, do things with it. Okay. I understand that. I so, understand that feeling very well. It, it, it hit that sweet spot and now you wanted it. Um, but I would have been impressed with it. I would have thought it was cool and, you know, wow, this is neat and everything. And I, I would have wanted to know more. And if someone had one, I'd love to see it. Yeah. I mean, that all that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah, and I know there's lots of people in 75 who could care less about the Altair when it came out. Uh, they would have probably spent that money doing something to their muscle car or yeah. whatever. You know, just, you know, put money into their house or save it to pay for gas. Or maybe buy an uh, early projection television. I think those are probably about 1800 right. bucks too. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> you know, your, your uh, what are they called? Your, your auto audio files and your, your other, your other, your and home consumer electronic geeks. And stuff. Yeah. There's this new thing called uh, videotape, yeah. And, and you're right, it could be somebody doing well, something with videotape or Betamax or... No kidding, in like 75, 76 time frame, I had a friend. And it's funny because they lived in an apartment like we did, yet they had this big... Have you ever seen these where they had that from that time frame? They had this big projection television. And it literally was this sort of giant thing that had like three big projector tubes or whatever red i guess it was rgb and then it had the big curved screen yeah you know, and you had to like 
set the, the projector part of it like you know i don't know 10 feet you had to from con- the screen and and then you had to converge each to <laughs> each other yes yeah. you know, so I it was this big expensive like projection television and you know it had to cost a lot of money but hey it gave you a great you know oh i was picture. i was impressed <laughs> great <laughs> football games that, that's what drives i'm sure it was really crude but it, i thought it was pretty cool back then televised sports drives those big screens but now you, that's probably something you could have appreciated. You, if you were, you probably could have bought one, put it together, made it work. I love gadgets. And done stuff, that, right? That's what would have done it for me. I love gadgets. Um, had I gotten into electronics a few years before, I would have had that popular electronics magazine. And I would have been maybe a few years sooner in my uh, home computing personal career um, because of it. But I was a little late coming in on it. But yes, that would have been me wanting to get it. Instead of asking for the TRS-80, you know, when it came out a few years later, I'd be asking for this. And, of course, I would be told no because, you know, I'm not the one making the money at that time. <laughs> right. It costs way too much. Yeah, and, and, and for those who did get into it, um, it, it didn't take long for them to realize that they were able to uh, do stuff with it with the expansion cards because of that uh, standard S100 bus system. And, you know, we'll, we'll get into this later. Competition started coming in and making it cheaper and easier for more people to get into it. Uh, eventually, somebody, instead of using the 8080 microprocessor in there, they put a Z80 microprocessor on a card. And now oh, you right. have a computer system that would run CPM, mm-hmm. which became uh, a standard for quite a while. And that opened up a whole world of software. And, and basically helped turn the Altair and, for the most part, some of its competition into trend-setting computers uh, by making them more usable. Mm-hmm. Have you had any personal experience with the uh, the Altair, David? I, um, I've had a little bit of experience over the years. So I will tell you that early on in my collecting, I actually purchased, um, so this is like 1994, I... Um, I purchased basically like a living room full of stuff from a guy in El Paso, Texas, while I was still in the army. And this is why I first got started in all this. And, um, and he had a bunch of S 100 computers and some printers and disc drives and just a ton of stuff. And his wife basically was like on him about, you got to get rid of this. And so <laughs> my wife was being very cool and supportive. And so she actually allowed me to pay him $500. And this is in 1994 and I probably made four or five trips back and forth from his house to bring it to my house. But I acquired this, like I said, a living room full of stuff. And it was I know it was a generic S100, a, uh, an MSI, um, a processor technology soul, and, uh, and an Altair 8800B turnkey, which was one of the, late, you know, one of the last Altairs that they made. So it had a different faceplate on them too. Yeah, it didn't, it didn't have a front panel at all, which was kind of you know, disappointing in some ways. But you know, from a, back then, from a user standpoint, that was great because all you had to do was turn a key and turn it on and boot it up, like a real computer nowadays. But um, and uh, it was running, and I I ran CPM on it and played around, and this was early on, didn't really know what I was doing, so I owned that. I, I ultimately sold that to a guy in Australia, and I remember I did a bunch of research and found the cheapest way to ship it to him, and I gave it to him for even for a bargain back then. But it, he had a he had sold computers, and the name of his computer store was the Altair services or something like that so you wanted to altair yeah. so that was kind of neat but ultimately i ended up i never owned an altair a real altair of the front panel though i'm trying to think but anyway jumping to it 
to now, I do own an Altair clone, which there's a link in the show notes. So from from an external standpoint, it looks and runs and seems exactly like a real 1975 Altair 8800. I'll that's core. It's a really one. simple. Yeah. yeah, if you look inside of it, there's almost nothing in there <laughs> inside the case. But, but you still get the same original out-of-the-box functionality. Yeah, it totally... In hardware. Right. And it didn't sound like a real Altair either because you fire one of those things up, they like, sound like a jet engine. Yeah, well, my, <laughs> my story about the Altair, you know, kind of is a testament to the way those Altairs were, especially when it came to the interference and stuff that they, and the noise. Oh yeah. Right. Uh, many, many Station years two. back, I worked at a company. Um, it, it was actually a computer security company. Uh, a former boss of mine owned one of those. He bought it as an original kit. And, and it was at that time I was kind of getting back in, into, I was getting into vintage computing. So he brought that in one day and I was actually able to flick, you know, the, the control panels and stuff like that, you know, flip the switches. I got the feel for it and saw, you know, what it was all about. But he would not hook it up or he would not power it on. He was afraid that any EMF or electrical interference coming from the power supply would disrupt all the nearby computers near his office. That they were, you know, it could be that sensitive. Because huh. the FCC really didn't slap many major labels on this thing. It, it you know, it will, it probably had some, you know, protection or restrictions in use but you know this thing threw off all sorts of emf oh yeah yeah it would generate all sorts of weird signals in fact that then they use an am radio to create music right right by feeding off all these electrical signals that this thing puts out yeah so yeah he didn't want to turn it on and it, there were no time came about where he could actually hook it up so i never got to see it operate but i got to see it in person you know hands-on type thing um but at the time i didn't think much of the uh, altair so it wasn't as awe-inspiring as it would be, you know, today to be near one and actually use one. But the only thing I can do to use one now is to, you know, get on an emulator or a simulator of some sort. We'll have some links at the site for some different emulators. So maybe we can talk about them real quick. And we have a link, of course, to the okay. well, to the Altair clone. And there's there's been a number of them over the years, the emulators, right? Have you yeah, used quick, any of those? Well, a quick overview. I played around with a couple of them this week just to refresh myself on them. There's one emulator out there called SIMH, and actually emulates a lot of vintage computers of the time, like PDPs and other ones that I don't remember the names for. Mostly S100 type systems, if they're all going to be grouped together. I, I don't think PDP was S100, but <laughs> no. um, it, it, it's out there. It emulates the Altair 8800, but it's a simulator. It's a simulator in the sense that it simulates the operability, but it's not actually software which mimics the hardware with all the bugs or whatever they put in. That's the difference between simulators and emulators. This will take, uh, you can actually download software. We'll have a link to some of the software archives you can use in this, but you would, within the simulator, type the word do and the name of the special control file. And as long as it can find the disk files on your hard drive, it will run them as if you were using this system as a CPM based system. It, it, it doesn't emulate the 8800 part uh, or the 8080 very well, but it does a good job emulating if it had like a Z80 card in it. And then there's one that works online with Java that's called the uh, Altair 8800 simulator. And that one lets you play with the switches through a Java interface. So you can, you can enter programs and play around with the switches as they were, you know, a real Altair. But there's not much you can do with it. They throw a few pieces of uh, software in there for you to play around with. But that's more of like 
a toy. You know, you, you make switches move, watch lights do things. But if you really wanted to work it, I recommend the SIMH. Well, and of course, there's there's so much more that we could talk about and so much more to learn about the Altair. So hit it up. Go to the virtual Altair site is a great site to learn about the different models and just read more and uh, you know listen to the Ed Roberts interview I did with him is excellent. You know, when he died a few years ago, there's plenty of write-ups about that, about him and then about his company. And the Wikipedia article about the Altair is really good. So Plenty of information. So that's kind of one of the parts of our show, too, is to hope, hopefully stimulate more interest in these different systems for you to go off and learn more. Because we could just talk about it forever. Yeah, it was, <laughs> it was that formidable. I mean, chances are nobody will forget it who's ever into this stuff. But yeah, we'll make sure you don't forget it. And anyway. there's a debate about what was the first personal computer. And, you know, I, to me, it's pretty clear that this machine was, or at least deserves to be called sort of the, the first significant personal computer that was, a, you know, sold in quantities, was available as a full kit or assembled, you know, and was commercially successful. It got people moving on it. So you could define it in a lot of different ways about the first personal computer. But I think the, I think the Altair 8800 is really it. That's where we stand. So, all right. So I'm going to move along then to our second machine for the show, which uh, we'll be talking about the MSI uh, 8080 next time around. But uh, we're going to talk about the K-Pro. And the reason being is because Andrew K uh, died on August 28th. And uh, he was the son. Well, so he's the man, obviously K. So he's the man, the namesake of the company K-Pro and the computer K-Pro. So just to talk a little bit more about him, he was the son of Russian immigrants. He grew up in New Jersey. He graduated from MIT in 1940 with an engineering degree. And then he moved to California to work at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena before finally settling in San Diego County in 1949 to join Bill Jack Scientific Engineering. One of his significant inventions and the start of his business dealings was uh, in 1952, he invented the digital voltmeter to precisely measure electrical current. And a year later, he then founded his company, Nonlinear Systems. So that was 1952, or 1953, he started the company. So for what, almost 30 years or so, forever starting computers, he made his living, and I don't know if he made a fortune or not, but I guess he did pretty good. He made voltmeters and other electronic equipment. It's all important stuff. So then it brings us to 1981, and that's when nonlinear systems decided to design a personal computer. Um, the Osborne One Portable had come out that same year, and I guess they decided that, I think this is something we can do, and we could do it better. So uh, so they decided to design a computer a lot like the Osborne One, but better. And it was originally going to be called the uh, KComp2, but ultimately it was called the KPro2, and that was the first really marketed model of the computer. It's not in my notes here. I believe I read, though, that the reason they called it the K-Pro 2 is to make it seem like it was a... Uh, it's been around, you know? <laughs> they don't want to make it make it seem like the, right yeah, the, first, the first one or whatever. So the K-Pro 2 is the first marketed uh, model, and it came out in 1982. And then also non-linear systems kicked off the subsidiary or daughter company called K-Pro Corporation. And, uh, and then that's why they came up with the computer called K-Pro. So... Some of the differences about the K-Pro is, um, unlike 
the Osborne one that used like a heavy duty plastic case. The K Pro had a case made entirely out of aluminum. It was very sturdy and very durable. And they were designed with the same philosophy as the company's test instruments. So especially being rugged and reliable and then well equipped yet reasonably priced. Well, compared to the Osborne, yeah. 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 Well, they're around the same price, but maybe reasonably considering what you got for your money, even though they were both the same price, you know, or close yeah. to the same price, what you got for your money out of the K Pro seemed like you got a better value. Well, I think if you were to set them side by side in 1982, right off the bat, most people I think would choose the the K Pro. The biggest reason is because the Osborne one had a five inch screen and the K Pro had a nine inch screen, and they could read the K Pro. Yeah. So that that was a huge difference right there. It's, it made enough 40 columns on a 5-inch screen on a Commodore SX-64. Mm-hmm. 80 characters or 80 columns on a 5-inch screen of the Osbournes. Right. Even worse. It says here they the K-Pro started off at seventeen ninety five, which I believe is right around the same price as the Osborne. But again, it was arguably a better system, with a big, certainly with a bigger screen. But by mid-1983, K-Pro had reduced the price to fifteen ninety five. So I think they had a huge advantage then. And also, I think by 1983, Osborne was pretty much going bankrupt. And that's a whole other story. Yeah, but the software could move over, right? They were both, both Yeah, CPM, see, that's right? the bottom line is they're CPM machines. And we're going to talk a little bit more about emulation and all that, but they were CPM. So by 1983, sales had rose to more than 10,000 units a month, Thanks. which uh, is huge. And, uh, and I have in the notes that that made them the fifth largest computer producer in the world, though in some of these more recent articles after Andrew K. died, uh, other people are saying they were the third largest. So I'm not totally sure about that. So over the next few years, K-Pro released a half dozen or more similar systems. They were all based on the Z80 microprocessor, and they all ran CPM. It wasn't until 1985 that K-Pro began producing IBM PC-compatible MS-DOS machines. And that late that. start put them in a poor market position and then they ultimately filed for bankruptcy in 1990. This was, of course, very common sort of a, a, a thing that happened at that time. You know, if you didn't ultimately become 100% IBM compatible and run 16-bit, you know, MS-DOS, you weren't going to last. And, and Yeah, so, I'm trying to remember if I ever saw a K-Pro um, IBM compatible system. Maybe I didn't. Well, yeah, the, and yeah, the funny soft, thing it's is... It's all software driven. So Yeah, they sold so many of them. You know, you certainly probably uh, would have seen them well and you know, people using them well into the late, you know, 80s and early 90s. But, you know, the company wasn't selling them anymore. They were going bankrupt, but people were still using the heck out of them. But, you know, also by the mid to late 80s, you started seeing the rise of true laptop computers, too, which that started probably put a ding in their, you know, in their oh, market, yeah. too. So, um, again, in my notes here, so I'd had that they're the fifth largest. Also, this is out of another article saying that, that by the mid-1980s, they were the third largest company selling behind Apple and IBM, and that they employed nearly 700 workers in Solana Beach. So basically, the, the lesson here is that they missed a key technology landmark when they didn't um, figure out that, that the, uh, I guess nowadays you, you would have called, or recent history would call it the Wintel standard, but then it was the, you know, the Intel DOS standard. And so they didn't adopt that fast, fast enough, and they basically if- led to bankruptcy. Be interesting if K Pro was the one that did the uh, clean room reverse engineering, of, yeah, uh, DOS systems instead of compact. You know what life would be like for them now. Which that happened about 1985, didn't it? I think the first compact <clears throat> portable, I believe, was right around that time frame. Yeah, around that time frame. I don't know the exact year, but it yeah, compact. Which you know what really isn't doing much anymore. 
Um, so K-Pro did ultimately go into PC compatibles. My eBay pick for the show is actually one of those, a sort of a laptop form factor. But you have to, I mean, if you if you look at the scene and magazines or anything else by the, the late 80s, I mean, it was just, you could easily get buried in the competition. So they, they were buried by the competition at that point. You know, it doesn't matter how big you are. It's what, what have you done for me lately? Exactly. It, it, um, it just all took off. So now have you had a, have you ever owned a K-Pro or used one? Uh, I've used one. Um, back in the mid eighties, I was, uh, um, a member of a, a local Commodore computer club at the military base I was stationed at in, in uh, Fort Hood, Texas. And, uh, somebody actually brought in a K-Pro to show it up against the Commodore SX-64. And I didn't really know much of CPM at the time, but it did look neat. It, it was, it was nice. Um, did they show it like, uh, look how much better this SX-64 is? Oh, well, the SX-64 had color. And yeah. You got to understand, this is a room for Commodore people. Um, yeah. Some people joked about the K-Pro because, you know, it's still doing black and white. Um, but it, right. it, I still saw it as, as a nice machine. I, I toyed around with it. I got a little bit. I learned how to do things in CPM. I, I wasn't an expert at it, but I was able to at least, you know, do a directory list of files and stuff like that. And it was nice to, to play with. But it was actually big. And this is from somebody who, you know, it was big in its own in its own way, but it's actually all self-contained. Whereas I was dragging a TV, a couple disk drives, all the cables, all in separate boxes or stuff like that for my Commodore 64. And then I'm I'm like I had the nerve to call this K Pro big and unwieldy. And I guess also let me mention for anyone out there listening, if you, if you don't know what CPM is. It stands for Control Program for Microprocessors. So we had mentioned the Altair became, and the S100 bus became the de facto standard of you know, computer architecture and bus, system bus. Well, CPM pretty much was the de facto standard operating system of the 1970s. So essentially, you know, really for lack of any better way to state it, it was the 8-bit MS-DOS. Yeah, or or you say MS-DOS was a 16-bit CPM. But it worked primarily on uh, uh, Z80 microprocessors, although right, there were right. versions. It worked with 8-bit processors versus MS-DOS was created to work with 16-bit processors for the That's IBM right. PC. So and it was a de facto standard for, you know, again, for lack of a better term, maybe for the business level computing platforms of the 70s and early, you know, 80s somewhat. Because, of course, you know, by the late 70s, you had Apple and Atari and uh, Commodore so you can run programs like what WordStar and, and DBase 2. Yeah. I mean, this did for an 8 bit uh, operating system, it did a lot of nice stuff. I mean, DBase 2 is nothing to laugh at. Well, maybe by today's standards, but it was very powerful. So, one of the things we want to talk about in our segments here is like emulation. And, and so, I have a link to a CPM emulation page in the show notes. But, you know, if you want to emulate a K Pro, I guess unless someone designs one where it looks like a picture of a K-Pro with its screen and now you're, it looks like you're using it. You know, really, if you're just running CPM, CPM is CPM. It kind of doesn't really yes. matter what you're on. You know, it could be an Osborne or a K-Pro or a, I don't know, well, name off some other one, an Altair. CPM Inside runs it, on my Commodore 128 because it's got a Z yeah. processor in it. And there are slightly different... Like, for instance, the Commodore CPM, I think, is a little different, but not by much. Well, the Commodore 64 CPM is. But okay. I think for the 128, it can read the MFM disks. Yeah. If you have the 1571 drive, it, it actually runs CPM. 
So we're going to, you know, end up talking about a number of machines that like we're talk about the MSI next time and any of the S100 buses. And there were alternatives to CPM, but pretty much, again, that was a de facto operating system. So because people know, can find software for it. Yeah. So as far as emulating it, well, if you have a CPM emulator, or you can run CPM. That's basically what the experience was like software wise. Yeah, it's like having a, a MS-DOS clone. It doesn't make any difference who manufactured it, as long as it's worked with the core functionality that everything else does. Now, I also put in uh, a note about clones, and I actually owned the one that I'm going to mention here called the Zorba, which is very interesting. I really liked it a lot. It, it was very much like the K-Pro, but, but it had a plastic case versus the heavier aluminum case. So sort of like the Osborne, but it was very much more like it was almost like an improved K-Pro, in my opinion, but with the plastic case. Zorba. So it was a Greek computer? Yeah. No, no. <laughs> so what did the, did the K-Pro have that big, long line of function keys at the top of the keyboard? Like I don't Zorba remember. Does? And, uh, you know, just to mention some of the models, there was the K-Pro 2. Then there was the two different K-Pro 4s. There was the Roman numeral K-Pro 4. And later there's a K-Pro number 4. And then, of course, they went into some of the, I don't know, after that. With the, the K-Pro with the 10, ones. I think. There, there is one other emulator out there called Ness that emulates it uh, along yeah. with a bunch of other systems. And that, that actually but again, what is that emulation like? I, I'm not sure. Oh, Ness not sure puts what the... a screen in front of you. It, it actually emulates the hardware with software. So it's not well, simulated. what I'm saying is, okay, once you're in there and let's say, okay, now it's like a um, K-Pro, then what do you do? You run CPM? Yeah, you it? run CPM. You're right. It's a, <laughs> you can pick any of the CPM-based emulators and, and run the same software. Now, do you happen to know of, so the Zorba, I actually have owned one. And so I know, you know, and technically, is it a, is it a a K-Pro clone? Well, no, it's just another K-Pro-like portable CPM machine. But uh, can you think of any others offhand? That are... I'm certain there were other ones. There were other... K-Pro-like? Yeah, there are other luggables that were, you know, Mm. K-Pro-like. I just can't think of them offhand. Not offhand and not without a little bit of research. I want to say, do you remember a computer called the Eagle? Maybe that was a... It might have been an MS-DOS machine. I'm certain there's some other ones out there. But... Oh, absolutely. You know, we're not trying to list everything in the world. But that's one, I think, semi-significant one to mention. So, you know, we're trying to keep the show to about an hour. Oh, <laughs> think, we'll do that next time. It's going to be a little over. Yeah, we're still evolving here. But let, we're going to move. So we're going to keep we the... a lot to talk about. Yeah, the K-Pro segment a little bit short. And let's move right into our eBay auction. So basically, each of us are going to pick sort of one, you know, one of the machines we've discussed here. So go ahead, Jeff, with, with your first choice. Yeah, what we decided to do... There, other podcasts do eBay oh. stuff, too. But we wanted to do something a little different. We wanted to pick instead of right. something that may still be available for you to bid on, you know... Sorry if we don't give you any leads to anything that's of a good value, but we're going to test the market or at least see how the market is on these things. Right, right. Collectability. So we're going to pick eBay auctions that have been completed and and successfully completed that were sold. Um, that is, if we can find them. So that gives you an idea of what these things might be worth. Yeah. Um, the the first one is that I found was a, a Mitz Altair 8800B-DM. Now this one had something special with it. It was actually given to the person who has the auction. It was given to him from a MITS employee, and it's a very low serial number um, out there. In fact, I think if I decode the serial number properly, it's number 34. Huh. Uh, but it, it also comes with... Um, it but but it, is a ra- it is a late... It's, a, it's one of the turnkey models, like what I was talking about. Is it? Yeah, so it's not a front panel machine. It's actually one of the later... 
uh, Altair second edition or whatever they may be, right? Yeah, or uh, is this? Oh, this has got disk drives built into it too, though. That's pretty cool. I don't know if I've ever seen one like that. But anyway, go is. ahead. I wonder if they cut the case to do that. I don't know. I don't know if I didn't know you could do that. There, there's plenty of pictures on it. They can, they shows you the inside with the two disk drives, and it looks like all the expansion bus slots are full. Um, so he's got lots of extra cards with it too. Um, but maybe the maybe the fact that it was a, a low serial number or it was directly handed or given to him or sold to him from a MITS employee, it sold for $3,999.99. Just couldn't get that extra penny out of somebody. Yeah, which is a um, lot, I think. Yes. Now, I do know this particular seller. I don't know them, but this particular seller, I think um, they, they price their things pretty high. And I don't know how much they sell or how quickly, but... You know, I, I guess they sell sooner or later. Somebody with the cash will come in. So obviously, someone with some good bucks came in and didn't mind paying four grand for this thing. Maybe, yeah, or maybe they have a reputation for selling really good quality stuff. I yeah, that's fair. I think they do, from what I see. If um, so, if I click on like their see other items, I think you'll find, you know, they have some they have some nice stuff. And uh, well, they got they got sixteen hundred items. Good lord! Wow. <laughs> But um, I'm trying to jump right to the computer, so there's only 206 there. No, uh, well, um, yeah, there is a lot of stuff there. But hey, uh, did you find anything out there based on eBay that sold? Huh. Yeah, I was just looking at this. Okay, let's see. Let me go back to the notes here. Well, what I found was a uh, when the Altair 680. So it's a MITS Altair 680 vintage microcomputer working with S100 expansion, which uh, you know what I hadn't really looked that closely to, at this auction. But the Altair 680 was not S100, so that's funny. But it still gives you all the fancy lights and switches, so it gives you the original Altair look and feel. Yeah. It looks smaller, too. Yeah, it is. And uh, this machine had what was called the SS50 bus, so this person doesn't really know what they're talking about, but uh, correct me if I'm wrong, anyone, if you go check it out. Am I, but you it know, it's a neat auction. Well, I don't know. It says here with 680 to S100 expansion. Looks oh, like yeah. It's a visor card to give it S100 expansion, and all the slots are sideways. Look at that. That's, that's weird. nifty. But still, yeah. it's pricey. I'd love to have one of these, but it's that's a pricey. Yeah, look how nice that thing's work. Are, are, you, are we sure this is not like a reproduction? Oh, I, I, I swear this know. thing looks too clean. <laughs> uh, household. It looks, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. I see on the back there. It's got. Let me let me zoom over there. It's got a mid serial number. Okay. Yeah, it's got a mid sticker. Wow. Anybody can print those. Well, in any case, all right. <laughs> so the Mits Altair 680 vintage microcomputer working with the S100 expansion, 12k of RAM. It sold for one thousand one hundred thirty-six dollars with uh, fifty dollars shipping. I guess that would be to me. In any case, that's pretty darn fair. That yeah. that's that doesn't seem too bad to me, especially for how clean and nice this thing looks. So, so there you go. You're not going to fit disk drives in this, but you still get that old world Altair, you know, flip switch feel, yeah. look and feel, uh, but without the size apparently, and uh, but with still some of the functionality. So, yeah, if, if if I if I came across this kind of Altair, I wouldn't cry that I couldn't find an original one, especially if I had the money to buy it. Um, I would probably snag something like this and still get the general core, the the, the general Altair experience. Yeah. Yeah, because again, function functionally, it's it doesn't matter that it's a the six eighty versus the eighty eight hundred or whatever. The switches and all that are the same, I believe, right? It looks like it looks like there's a, f a few switches missing, 
uh, but the labels on the switches aren't there from the original Altair. Okay. The original Altair had a lot of labeling on the switches, and I think some of the switches were dual purpose. Uh, this one is missing some of that, and that might be because it's it's probably turnkey in a way, mm-hmm. so it doesn't need all that stuff to to load up things. But still, it's still pricey. Now, if you want something cheaper. Yeah, back to you. How about find, what, find, find a K Pro? <laughs> what K Pro did you find? Yeah, we I, found that these are things are not that valuable, are they anymore? I found so. a K Pro two uh, for the easy price of eighty nine ninety five, and even shipping wasn't all that bad for for my location for Pennsylvania from oh what Minnesota. are you sure? uh, My shipping was forty bucks. Oh, me too. Bought it. Okay, so maybe there was a flat rate for something like that. Uh, K Pro two nine inch screen, couple disc drives. Looks like he still even has the. Uh, the, the drive uh, cardboard you know protection things which is nice a lot of times people ship them with the doors closed and the heads banging um, they won't even put a floppy disk in just for protection but it looks nice and clean has a nice 80s looking striped k pro logo on the side um, and, it doesn't, and but it didn't power up it didn't power up. It doesn't power up now. Take the CPM guts out of another computer, stick it in there, call it a Capro, right? It's all CPM. Yeah, but it's probably it's like we're, in there. we're talking, it's probably like capacitors or something, I think is, is one of it the yeah, common things that happens. These, it goes bad and you, you got to recap these. If they're, And that's the thing. If you keep them running, the capacitors are usually good. But when they dry up from sitting, you know, that's where you get those pops and those funky smells. Yeah. But, you know, we are looking online and there's a number of K-Pros on eBay right now. So I'm pretty certain you could find one working in good shape for well less than $100. Or even more if it, it comes with like accessories or mm-hmm. is clean. Now, as a sidestep, since we talked about Osborne, I see a vintage Osborne here for $1,000. Oh, really? That's a buy it now. Nobody bought it yet. That, that's an active auction. We'll see if they get that. Maybe when we cover the Osborne <laughs> in the future. I think that's kind of, yeah, that's pretty high, I think. All right, so then my uh, K-Pro I chose was sort of a departure from, you know, what most people think of K-Pro. So this is a later machine called the K-Pro 2000 Laptop Home Computer. It sold for $124, $125. It was in Asheville, North Carolina. So and there, the shipping was pretty cheap. I could have got it for $25 shipping. Um, let's see, what does it say? I think So this is the DOS ones that they were making. They're right? saying it's one of the first MS-DOS laptop computers. I don't know about that. <laughs> I don't think it was one of the, I mean, arguably, I guess it was an early one, but whether it was one of the first. Actually, I'm trying to see, does it say that it works? It's in good condition. It's been well, powered it up. boot up screen. It shows the MS-DOS phone. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Yep, you're right. I knew I thought it, it works. And listen, the screen I, looks a little funny. It almost looks like, you ever see those VTech toy computers yeah. that have that look like a big screen, but it's really just a small LCD in the middle? And of that's the way a lot of them were back then. <laughs> that's what this looks like. <laughs> Uh, it has this huge bezel area uh, and mm-hmm. matting. It's almost like a matted picture. You got the bezel, then you got this matting that looks like it serves no purpose, and then you have the small, very wide aspect ratio um, LCD screen. And if you look, do you see how to the upper right of the keyboard, the little that's the disk drive. It sort of pops up. Do oh yeah. See, do you see that? Three and a half inch. Yeah. Yeah, that's where the disk drive goes. So, uh, does they say what year this is? So, so this pretty much tells me it's you know we know that it's at least. I'm going to say probably 88, 87, 88, something like that. Sounds about the right Because the three and a half inch disk drive didn't really, I think it was the PS2 line in 87, 86, 87 that really brought that out on, and, you know, PC wise. And then of course the Mac 
in around that time, 87, I guess, with the SE. Oh, wait, what am I saying? With the original Mac, had three and a half inch. But it was, God. <laughs> Shame on you. <laughs> yeah, I was just thinking about what the Mac was around that same time. I worked in a computer store when the PS2s showed up. I remember that. Yeah, that's when it started becoming popular for almost everybody else, it seems. Um, or when people finally realized that, hey, we can have three and a half inch drives too. But this shows that it, whether you want a K-Pro that's uh, MS-DOS compatible or a K-Pro that's CPM compatible, you're going to pay about the same price. Yeah. And so to sum it up, all tiers are worth something. K-Pros, not so much. But that nope. could change down the road. You never know. But I don't think all tiers are going to lose their value too much because obviously they're, they're what, 20 years? Well, yeah, they're 10 years older or more. And, um, you know, there's they're rarer. But K-Pros, as they become more rare, like anything, then their value will kind of go up, especially if they work. Yeah, but, that's what we're finding. As long as they work, they, their value goes up a lot faster than if they don't work. But it's a great you know, example of a machine that you could get into very cheaply. So I haven't looked on Craigslist in a while, but I've been in the Atlanta area for five years. Excuse me, in the time I was here, early on, the first couple of years, I think I acquired about three of them. Yeah, with... If I wanted a dedicated CPM machine, which I really don't have a dedicated CPM machine, if I wanted one, K-Pro seems like a fair machine to yeah. buy. And they're nice because they're, obviously, they're they're fairly small and you can, you know, they're portable. You can close them up and, Put you know, they have a handle and you can kind of set them off on the side and pull it out when you need it. So um, as I had started downsizing my collection, some of my luggables were some of the last to go. And I, I still have my SX-64 and um, I don't think I have any other luggables. I would have kept a K-Pro, but the, all the ones I had had problems. And so I ended up giving away to somebody who could fix them. So well, anyway. If you can fix it, you can keep it, right? Yeah. But I just didn't have the time. It, or the... still keep it? Yeah. I mean, someone in the club here locally, but I just didn't have the time or really, you know, it's not my forte to open one of those things up and, you know, work on capacitors and stuff. Oh, let me add it. So, all right. Well, I'm going to keep the show on target time-wise here, so we're going to wrap it up. So that's going to be it for this show, and we are scheduled to release our next show two weeks from this release, so that'll be Friday, October 3rd. You can find our evolving guide and all the show notes at historyofpersonalcomputing.com, and please send some feedback to feedback at historyofpersonalcomputing.com. We really want to hear from you, and you can either send us an email or send us an uh, audio comment. If you have a Mac, you have GarageBand, you can record something real quick, uh, export it as an MP3 or um, Audible, but Audacity is free for uh, PCs. Fire up your smartphone, record something. Yeah, there, oh, there you go. Yeah, that'd be great to have some you know audio to play. Um, Let us know. If you have experience with the with the machines that we've discussed today, we want to hear your stories. Yes, please. As well as we would love to. So starting now, we are asking and a call out to anyone that has. The, so we've only covered two machines, the Altairs and the K-Pros. So if you own any one of these, please, would you take a high quality picture of them and send it to us? Because we are building a online guide and we'd like to include your picture. If you send us your picture, we're assuming we have permission to you know, post it, print it. Or we'll you send will. you a lollipop. <laughs> also, uh, the show should show up in iTunes any day now. Uh, and then when it does, would you please leave us a review? That'll help. Tell your friends. Tell your neighbors. Tell your loved Visit ones. Visit our Facebook page. Yeah, we do have a Facebook page. Yeah. Uh, follow well, some Twitters. Find the link on our website. And we also have Twitters. Yeah, we got the Twitters. We are uh, H of PC. No, wait. 
that right? No, we're, H of PC. no, we're history of PC. You know, why am I guessing? <laughs> <laughs> Are we history of PC? Darn it. Let's see. Let me go there. Maybe right, that's yeah. why nobody's finding us. Relax, everybody, while I look it up. Oh, yeah, we're history. We're at history of PC is our Twitter feed. Hey, by the way, Jeff, we have 14 followers. Wonderful. It's not bad for, what, two weeks or whatever? Yeah, hopefully that will increase exponentially. So thanks, everybody. Join us again on the next show. See you, Jeff. All right, see you, Dave.